This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Well, tribal leaders from across the United States met this week for the first Tribal Nations Summit since 2016. On the agenda for the virtual summit hosted by the White House were public safety and justice, land and treaty rights, and the impact of COVID-19 and climate change. Joining us for more about the summit and what it means for Florida tribes is the managing editor of Native News Online, Valerie Vanderpan. Valerie, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So this is the first Tribal Nations Summit since the Obama administration. What is the significance of that? It is very significant because, first of all, it allows tribes to interact with the federal government at the highest level of government. Tribal nations are sovereign nations, so the summit allows the tribes to interact on a nation-to-nation basis. Secondly, those representing the federal government, cabinet secretaries, realize they cannot show up to a tribal summit empty-handed. So they actually brought to the table memorandums of understanding and executive order, things that um, the tribes have been asking for for years. This administration actually um, took steps to begin to address and fulfill. So you refer to the fact that the administration didn't come empty-handed, and this administration has made some moves that seem on the face of them pretty sympathetic to Native Americans and their concerns, one being the appointment of Deb Harland as the Secretary of the Interior, first Native American appointed to a cabinet position. What do you think tribal leaders are looking for, though, as far as policy goes from this administration? I think just starting with listening to tribes, respecting tribal sovereignty, And bolstering a nation-to-nation level relationship is important. A constant desire of tribes is to maintain that nation-to-nation respect and relationship with the federal government. Um, With with that, they desire meaningful tribal consultation. They don't want the one-sided sort of white father knows best stance that I think a lot of U.S. government has done to tribal nations over centuries, right? Uh, The Tribal Summit is a a big step forward. Among the broad policy issues, tribes want better protection of their sacred lands. They want funding for adequate health care. The tribes have really been suffering during the pandemic. And I think just that uh, respect of sovereignty, listening to the tribes and um, making sure that how they want to operate is respected is, is, is huge. And so far, the Biden administration has done a decent job when dealing with the tribal nations on a nation-to-nation basis. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the things that came out of the summit then. President Biden issued five new initiatives uh, at the summit. What were the standouts from your perspective? So he did issue an executive order on missing and murdered Indigenous peoples, and that is very exciting in that it directs multiple agencies of government to work collaboratively with tribes, establishing a database of uh, missing persons, uh, working more closely with data on those missing persons' cases, establishing um, shareable databases on this issue. Incredibly, while we have a missing persons database for the rest of the U.S., somehow we don't have one for missing and murdered Indigenous peoples. So this executive order w- is very meaningful for the tribes. Um, there's also the Tribal Treaty Rights Memorandum of Understanding 
directing the Department of Agriculture, Defense, Commerce, Education, Energy, Homeland Security, Housing and Urban Development, Interior, Justice, Labor, Transportation, all of these agencies and, and many more to be involved with a tribal treaty rights understanding that the agencies will determine how they can best protect tribal treaty rights in their policymaking and regulatory processes. So often, I think, uh, regulatory agencies make policy and that, you know, they don't even think about the tribal nations or the indigenous peoples that their decisions are impacting. And this MOU really sets it clear that these agencies have to not only consider them, but listen to them and seek input from them. So that's, that's exciting. And the signatories of the MOU have 180 days um, to report back on their progress for strengthening um, those kinds of uh, tribal treaty rights. There was also the Tribal Homelands Joint Secretarial Order in recognition of the importance of tribal homelands under federal stewardship. The Department of Agriculture and Interior have joined this to commit the two departments to increasing opportunities for tribal participation in federal land management. That's exciting in that it can create opportunities of co-stewardship agreements. So it's not just the federal government taking care of the land It's not just the tribe taking care of the land, but there's more um, cooperation in how land is managed. Would some of these things take quite a while to kind of stand up? Like say say there was some framework for for more involvement or better involvement or better consultation with the tribal nations. Could some of that be done before this administration is, you know, at the end of its term, for example? That's exactly the point, I think, is that 180 days to make some sort of progress, I think, is quite reasonable. But the government is historically, we know it can move very slowly. And, you know, Native peoples, Indigenous tribes, we think in terms of many generations into the future. People like to talk about seven generations. One of the tribal leaders at the summit said, we think in 10,000 generations into the future. And if you're thinking and planning and living today, in preparation, not just for seven generations from right now, but for 10,000 generations right now, it really changes your behavior today and, and how you think about the choices that you're making and the environment that we're living in and what we're doing to support it. And for the government to continue to operate in four-year frameworks, it, it's not only is it unsustainable, but it's short-sighted. And it really doesn't take into account the generations that are to come that we really need to take care of right now. I guess the flip side of that is it's it's reassuring to know that there are folks who think we are going to be still around for 10,000 generations into the future, right, given the challenges facing humanity right now. Yeah, I, you know, I think that that's part of, you know, why so many people think it's so urgent that we take environmental action, that we take action, that we're mindful of how we act today. It's easy to think that we won't be around for 10,000 generations if we're only living for today. But when we really start living for the future, for for people who are great, 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 grandchildren, with them in mind, I think it just, the whole world, the whole universe kind of shifts when that thinking shifts. On that note, one of the people speaking at the summit was Environment Secretary Jean McCarthy, and she talked about climate change. And as you know, uh, and you've reported on yourself, Valerie, Florida uniquely is 
in the crosshairs of climate change because of our geography. What was your takeaway from that discussion at the summit? I think there's a lot of hope, you know, that the infrastructure bill, for example, will provide funding for tribes to mitigate against climate change. But the amounts of money available are really, you know, as one tribal member put it, a drop in the bucket. Every tribe in the United States is facing massive issues with climate change from rising water in South Florida to rising water in Alaska to wildfires, mudslides, flooding. And, and we like to think of these, I think, in the, in the U.S. as, oh, these are issues in Florida or these are issues in Alaska. You know, oh, that island's disappearing in Alaska or it's disappearing in Florida. But if you look at what's happening Right now, just today in the Pacific Northwest with flooding, they had to evacuate an entire town, I think. Bellingham, Washington was evacuated because of flooding. So these things are happening everywhere. And the amount of money available is is really a drop in the bucket compared to what's needed. And I can't speak for the tribes here in Florida, but I think the power of of the government listening to tribes is important, respecting tribal sovereignty to do what is best for the ecosystem is important. Um, tribes in general, again, live with the planning for thousands of years into the future. And, you know, trying to stop climate change in four years or even thinking that we can stop climate change is not really preparing for the generations to come. Native people understand we are part of the ecosystem. We're not consumers of it. We're a part of it. So how to live with that, how to integrate with it, and how to go with it, it's a much different perspective than trying to stop it. You know, and I think despite COP26 and despite the words that were spoken at the tribal summit, the Biden administration is approving oil and gas permits at a pace not seen since the George W. Bush administration. So it's, you know, while it is good that we're making progress, it is good to to have conversations and to listen and, and to hopefully move forward. The reality is that we're still heavily dependent on the things that we know are causing permafrost to melt, sea levels to rise, wildfires and, and flooding to increase. You mentioned infrastructure before, and of course, President Biden's $1.2 trillion investment and Jobs Act does include money for tribal-specific funding. Have you had time to dig into some of the details about that and, and what that means for tribal nations and what it might mean specifically for Florida? I'm not going to speculate on how Florida tribes will seek that money or what they'll do with it. Um, it is available, and I think that it is exciting for tribes to think about how they can mitigate against climate change or what they can do with it. But again, like I said, one of the things that was said was this money is just a drop in the bucket. It's not going to address deeply and meaningfully what needs to happen today in consideration of the, the generations coming forward. You know, it's difficult to ascertain exactly how and when the Infrastructure Act funds will come to Indian country. But the good news is that the funds are earmarked for Indian country. I think $15 billion for roads, bridges, broadband, healthcare facilities. For Florida, the funds will be distributed to the federally recognized tribes in Florida uh, with Seminole Tribe of Florida 
uh, being the largest one. It'll be interesting to see how this money is put to use and what kind of infrastructures are really able to be made. It's an ambitious bill. So there's a lot of money that can really be useful in transforming parts of the nation. And no doubt you and your reporters will be watching that closely as it as this kind of rolls out over the next few years. Absolutely. We, uh, we will be tracking it. And uh, that's an exciting, large project to take on. Well, Valerie van der Pan is the managing editor of Native News Online. Uh, we've been speaking about the Tribal Nations Summit, virtual summit that is uh, hosted by the White House this week. Thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. Up next, the Florida Classic returns to Orlando this weekend after a pandemic-enforced pause last year. We'll talk about the significance of the football match between Bethune-Cookman University and Florida A&M University. That's after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The Florida Classic is back this weekend after a pandemic-enforced hiatus last year. The football match between Bethune-Cookman University and Florida A&M University has been running since 1978, but the two storied HBCUs have been squaring off on the gridiron for nearly a century. And the Florida Classic is more than football. It's been described as a family reunion. It's a revenue generator for the two universities. And it's also a chance for the BCU and Florida A&M marching bands to go head-to-head in the Battle of the Bands. Well, joining us to speak more about the game is Bethune-Cookman's uh, Director of Athletics, Reggie Theus. Reggie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're also joined by Florida A&M University Vice President and Director of Athletics, Courtney Gaucher. Courtney, thank you as well. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. And joining us too is Florida Blue Market President for the Central Florida Region, Tony Jenkins. Tony, thanks as well. Great. Thanks to be here and excited for this weekend. Well, let me start by just talking about the game in broad terms. What does it mean to be back on the football ground in Orlando for the game this year after ta- having to take the year off because of the pandemic last year? And um, Reggie, let's start with you. What what does this mean for you, this game and this this week, this day? Well, the, to be perfectly honest with you, I, I think that Courtney would have a better answer for that because I'm. this is my first year at Bethune-Cookman. So I, I wasn't around for the disappointment but I will say this, the economic impact that the game is, has on the community uh, here and in Orlando is somewhere around 25 to $30 million. From our perspective, that's a fantastic family reunion because that's exactly what this game is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm learning, you know, how big the rivalry is. I, I actually have learned that Courtney and I are not supposed to like each other. Uh, that's <laughs> pretty hard because I actually like him a lot. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I've been a part of, of many rivalry games in my, my career. Uh, I was at the University of Louisville. And if you know anything about that rivalry with Kentucky, it, it's, it's enormous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a part of the I-10 rivalry in New Mexico on a, on a smaller scale nationally, but in that region, it's everything. It has added a, a, an enormous sense of excitement for our campus and, and everyone that I talk to. I haven't talked to anyone that has, has any connection with Florida. And even on the West Coast, uh, there's people who know about this classic. But everyone seems to be you know, really fired up about it. Uh, very obviously disappointed from last year, it not being played. 
And every time I talk to anyone that is affiliated with uh, FAMU, they keep talking about their revenge game <laughs> and, and, and how the tides are about to change. And I, and I keep reminding them about the last time that we played and, and we were down, we still came back. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting because you never know what's going to happen in a rivalry game. That's what's so exciting about it. Well, uh, Terry Sims, I want to welcome you to the conversation as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So a bit of pressure on on your shoulders and I guess on your opponent's coach as well. Like what's the sort of pressure like going into this game since it, it is such a high profile showpiece? Uh, it's pressure every week. So uh, it's, it's really no added pressure. It, I think, you know, it's a great, opportunity for our guys to showcase their talents on, on a great stage. Um, it's a great rivalry game. It's been this this way since the game was played in Tampa years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having these two schools do a lot of work together and, you know, we battle against each other on, on this one Saturday every year. So it's, it's no extra pressure. I mean, some people may feel it, but we feel it every weekend. So it's, it's nothing new. We just have to prepare for the game and go out and play it. You don't ever want to make a game too big for the players. And, you know, you, you can't really prepare and go out and perform the way you need to. Mm-hmm. Well, Courtney, thinking about what this game means to FAMU and also just reflecting on what happened last year and having to put the game on hold for a year, what are you thinking going into this? Well, you know, I'll say that uh, I think both institutions, both coaches, both teams are excited to be back and to participate uh, in this game. Yeah, last year was challenging for for both institutions. Um, You know, the economics that go behind this game, and Reggie mentioned it earlier, you know, it's a $30 million economic impact to the city of Orlando and Orange County, uh, but also the economic impact for both institutions, uh, you know, through a consortium we own this game and have an opportunity to really uh, make up a great percentage of our budgets that, that certainly help us create additional access and opportunities for these kids. And so it's good to be back. Um, we're anticipating a, a 50 to 60,000 person crowd uh, based on trends and things that have moved, um, you know, and it's a opportunity to, to really bring these fan bases that were, that were shorted last year back as a, you know, both of us uh, are, are new to the Southwestern Athletic Conference. Uh, and so this is the inaugural classic as, as members. And so there's a lot of anticipation uh, for Florida a in particular. Uh, we were finally able to, to crack uh, the top 25 from the SCS um, uh, polls. And so there is a lot of pressure on both sides. But I have a tremendous respect for Coach Sims and uh, BCU uh, because, again, they're much better than their record reflects. I'll promise you that. And uh, this game, records go out the window. And so, um, you know, our guys are ready. I'm sure Bethune's folks are ready. The bands are, are, are ready. And, and I know have practiced their new shows, but that's what makes the pageantry uh, and the unique opportunity to compete in this game uh, special for both institutions. And so, uh, we're really glad it was a tough year last year and just kind of getting back to a sense of normalcy. But again, it's, it's a great opportunity for our kids to showcase their talents on a national scale. Courtney, back to what the game means for FAMU. You mentioned that it actually brings some money into the college. Is, is that the way it works? So absolutely. Both institutions, uh, you know, benefit significantly uh, from this game uh, financially. You know, obviously ticket sales, sponsorship, all of those things are a part of 
this game. And so that's really important. Um, you know, and I'll say right now for Florida A&M, um, you know, we have made it very, very clear that we anticipate uh, and we hope uh, that should we take care of business on Saturday, uh, we're looking forward to moving forward with a playoff bid, an at-large bid at the NCAA level. Historically, HBCUs have, have been really limited in their opportunities to compete, but we hope and we, we think that our resume will, will demonstrate an opportunity to do that. Now, obviously, this game is important because that's at stake. And so, again, I know you mentioned pressure earlier, uh, you know, and as Coach Sim said, there's pressure every week. Well, there's a little bit extra for this game. And for us, Florida A&M, you know, we want to break this uh, this nine-game losing streak. And so um, there, there's a lot of uh, energy, excitement, um, but, again, just really excited to be back. So what he's really saying is the pressure really is on them. <laughs> Tony, I just wanted to to uh, bring you into this conversation for a moment. And Florida Blue's been sponsoring this football match since 2010 or 2011, I believe. So what does it mean to the company to have your name associated with this, uh, the pageantry and the, the performance? Well, you, you, you've heard from the officials from uh, Bethune-Cookman and the FAMU about uh, what this game means from a football standpoint, from an economic standpoint, our engagement with both of these institutions go well beyond this weekend. We, First of all, we love participating in this weekend. The energy, the excitement extends across the whole state. I, I begin getting calls from relatives, friends from, from Miami to Jacksonville. Think about it. These schools played their first game in 1925. So think about the years that grandparents, that that alumni have been participating in this rivalry. Now, the first Florida Classic was played in 1978. They just changed the name of the game. But our engagement and our involvement goes beyond the football field. Hmm. We are actively involved in providing scholarships to kids to help build an inclusive pipeline of talent to not only our business, but other, other companies as well. These two schools are rich in tradition of providing excellence in education to kids in pharmacy at FAMU, to healthcare at, at BCU, finance, business. And we know that these are the future leaders, not only in our state, but across the country. So we want to make sure that we as a company are supporting the advancement of education, scholarships, to these kids to show our support to both of these universities. So again, we love the weekend. Can't wait for it to happen uh, beginning uh, actually Friday, but our relationship and our engagement definitely extends beyond just this weekend. Tony, I believe the contract that Florida Blue has to, to sponsor this game runs through next year, right? So is Florida Blue going to sign up for more after that, do you think? Well, listen, we, we have loved our participation, our engagement, and uh, I, I don't see any reason why we would not. If, if, if the two schools will continue to have us to, to partner with them, uh, we love the relationship. We love the partnership. Having this game in Orlando has been great for the city. You heard about the economic impact, and we have had nothing but success 
and good relationships with both universities. Terry, I wanted to come back to you for a moment. Talk to me a, a little bit, if you could, about what the, the last year or last almost two years has been like as a, the coach of a football team and a football program. How has it been kind of working through the pandemic? And do you feel like there are some takeaways from that going forward? Well, I, I think the first thing that, that I can say we have learned is resilience. When you look at not having your football team for 20 months uh, and only having access to them at times through Zoom, uh, it's been, it was tough. Mm-hmm. It was tough, you know, keeping all of them engaged. We had a number of guys that opted out, uh, you know, they opted to go and graduate and move on with their lives or, you know, whatever. So it, it was tough doing that, but we had, a, I think, a good nucleus of guys that stayed around and we brought some new faces in and put it with them. And it's been challenging, but, you know, I think we have, as a whole, we have grown as a program. I think this whole football program has grown a lot. We have grown a lot closer because of the things that we have had to endure through this whole time of these last 20 months. What about the pandemic itself? Did you have many players actually come down with, with COVID? And if so, are they are they doing okay now? Yeah, we had about eight, 10 guys that actually had it. And, you know, they're all playing and fine now. We had one, one of our running backs actually had it twice. Uh, so we, we, we've had some cases we had to deal with. Courtney, final thoughts, just sort of heading into the weekend, like are there any particular routines that the team goes through to, to get ready for this? Practice hard, compete, uh, you know, get ready to put a hat on a hat, you know, and so uh, we, we are excited about it. You know, um, you know, I can't tell you how proud I am uh, of our team and our coaches for what Terry articulated earlier, resilience. Uh, not playing last year was tough emotionally, mentally, physically, uh, but it gave us an opportunity to refocus, get in the weight room, focus on academics. And now that we're competing, uh, I think you're seeing that hard work and dedication pay off with a top 25 defense. Isaiah Lamb, who's leading the nation in sacks right now. You know, Marquise Bell, who's having a banner year. And the list goes on. And so um, I'm tremendously proud of our student athletes for uh, taking on the challenge, fighting adversity, and competing at a high level. And so, um, you know, I would say those are some of our takeaways, uh, you know, around the pandemic and the circumstances last year. We're fired up to be in Orlando this weekend. And uh, as Reggie mentioned earlier, we are good friends. We, we, we're in this thing together. But for about 60 minutes there, uh, you know, we're supposed to be mad at each other. So <laughs> so we, we look forward to that. Uh, look forward to catching up with good friends, great partners, Tony Jenkins and Florida Blue, uh, because without them, this game wouldn't be possible. And even in the pandemic, they stepped up and made sure that there was a financial commitment to both athletic programs uh, that helped us get through the pandemic. And uh, we'd love to continue the rivalry. We'd love to continue our partnership. I'm speaking for Reggie and I on that. <laughs> oh, I, sec- I second that, Courtney. No no issues there. The only thing that you haven't talked about, Courtney, is that how your players have to, you know, prepare for number 10. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, we, we're, going, we're, we're hoping to snap that, you know. Uh, <laughs> I can't only have nine lives, Reggie. So, hey. <laughs> You just have to, you know, it's tough to prepare for number 10. (laughs) You know, the thing that we haven't talked about, too, is something that I have not been, uh, had a chance to see is is the battle of the bands. You know, I think that that is another aspect of this. And I call it a family reunion because it's one of the largest family reunions in the the country, you know, where, where, you know, two of the best HBCUs 
can can highlight and showcase their talents uh, on the court, off the court, uh, within the band, in the classroom. I think that it also gives us a chance to shed light on our, our great academics for for both universities. So uh, there's it's a win-win for everyone. Obviously, we're different places in our mindset. Uh, Courtney trying to get off that slide. And, and, and for us, we've been playing better football here in the last couple of games uh, to, to continue that and to grow. And I think that as coach would probably say or not say, uh, the, the pandemic and not playing, uh, the lack of workouts, the lack of summer workouts have had a, a massive impact on our, on our team and our season. But uh, with his staff and, and the way that he's done a, such a great job of this, navigating through this, uh, they're starting to play better football. And, and that's what you have to have to finish strong and, and to have an opportunity to win this game. Terry, any particular routines that you kind of have for your team before this game that differ from other matchups? No, I don't think you, you can do that and have your team ready to go. You have to have, you know, one routine. You, you keep everything the same. We don't believe in changing things for a game. Uh, we're going to be who we are. We're going to prepare the way we prepare, and we're going to go out and play. Uh, it's nothing extra added, nothing like that. There's enough going on with the game to add to all the adrenaline that they're already going to have where we don't need to interrupt their routine. Well, we've been speaking with Tony Jenkins. He's the Florida Blue Market President for the Central Florida region and, of course, Florida Blue sponsoring this weekend's uh, Florida Classic. Thanks so much, Tony. Thank you very much. Also joining us, Reggie Theus. He's the Director of Athletics for Bethune-Cookman University. Reggie, thank you so much as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. And Terry Sims, he is the coach for BCU. Terry, thank you so much. Appreciate you having me on. And Courtney Gaucher, Florida A&M University Vice President and Director of Athletics. Courtney, thanks so much as well. Thank you for having us. Up next, Duke Kahanamoku is described as the father of modern surfing, but he was also an Olympic swim champion. A new documentary screening at the Florida Surf Film Festival in New Smyrna Beach this weekend tells the story of the Hawaiian hero. We'll talk with the director when we come back. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The 8th Annual Florida Surf Film Festival runs Friday, November 19th and Saturday, November 20th at the Atlantic Centre for the Arts in New Smyrna Beach. One of the films in the lineup is Waterman. It's a documentary about two-time Olympic gold medalist Duke Kahanamoku, known as the father of modern surfing. Well, joining me for more is Kevin Miller. He's co-founder and executive director of the Florida Surf Film Festival. Kevin, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Good to be here. Thanks, Matthew. And also joined by Isaac Halasima. He is the director of Waterman. Isaac, thanks so much as well. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. Well, first of all, Isaac, congratulations on the film. It's a fascinating story, and you've got a star-studded cast. What got you interested in telling the story of uh, Duke Kahanamoku? I guess it starts with a very unique connection. <laughs> I guess you could say, God, I don't even know where to start when it comes to the connection, but my mom, my mom's brother lived in Hawaii and made the famous statue of Duke Kahanamoku on the mm-hmm. beach of Waikiki. And so that's my uncle. And then while she was there with my uncle in Hawaii, she met a, a Polynesian immigrant from Tonga, and that's how I came about. So in a weird way, it's like I kind of exist along with this statue in kind of a 
sideways chance. But I also, because of that connection, I grew up with the story of Duke, and I'd always known it. And one of the things as my career took off in directing that my uncle had suggested as I got older was to try to tell the story of Duke. Mm-hmm. And that's and at his funeral, when he died in 2016, is when I decided to start chasing the story. Just decided to try to tell it. One of the things that struck me about the film, too, is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you mentioned the fact that there's a statue of Duke in, like, three countries around the world. Yeah, that's, that's my favorite question to kind of kick things off. Because it blows my mind that the country he represented so well in the Olympics and, and doing so much, like, People forget the U.S. was not known as a swimming country before mm-hmm. Duke Kanemoku. But this country that he represented barely even knows him nowadays. He's barely coming up in conversations. And, and so it's, it's one of the questions I like to start off with, with a lot of people is asking, like, how many American athletes do you know of that have statues and monuments dedicated to them in three different countries? Mm-hmm. And, and no one can ever give you an answer. And it's Duke with, with Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. Two in the United States. He has the big statue at the Surface Hall of Fame in, in Huntington Beach, too. Well, the New Zealand and Australian connection is interesting to me, particularly my parents are from New Zealand and Australia, respectively. Why is it that he's venerated in those countries as well? Uh, you know, it's it's one of the things that, you know, a lot of Hawaiians will tell you that he, well, it's a funny argument, I guess you could say, between the Australians and New Zealands, where, where they, they'll tell you that surfing did exist, but he popularized it, I guess mm-hmm. is the best way to put it. He walked in there with a, he was a world-class athlete, you know, it's, Australia at the time was inviting athletes from all over the world to, to come in and just show them because they, they were a newer country, especially in the time of Duke. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were great at sports. And when they invited him in, it was, just, it was actually to swim, but they'd heard of surfing, and he was the best at surfing at the time. It would be this, the same as hearing about this thing called surfing and then it's Kelly Slater that shows up and decides to show you what to do, or John John. And they're doing like, you know, just wild things. And so that's, that's what it was. And it just, it caught fire in Australia and New Zealand in particular. Mm-hmm. New Zealand's connections literally, it, it's probably one of the ones I like even more because it wasn't just showing surfing. It was actually helping the indigenous people see, how, how do I put it, gain pride in their own culture. Because it, when you read the news articles, especially in New Zealand, they're expecting Superman. They're expecting this superhero from America that that was coming in and just, you know, was going to blow their minds. And when they saw him get off the plane, they were like, well, we got a lot of those. You know, <laughs> like, you know he, he, and it, it's funny. They even say it's like, he looks like a Maori. Like, mm. He looks like one of us. And, and he was met by the Maori chiefs and, and Hawaiian and the Maori language are very similar. And so they were able to communicate with each other. And he actually helped bring a lot of pride to the, to the New Zealanders, but the Maori, the indigenous in particular. And so it's, it's just, extremely unique that's why the one in new brighton was also special because mm-hmm. that's that was the, the first time you know they saw it and they got to see one of their own that was that wasn't just celebrated he celebrated throughout the world and he looked just like them and so it was really really a special moment in that sense too for them so australia it was it was a sport that i mean the waves in australia anyone that surfs knows you mm-hmm. know it's, it's it's a special place to do it so of course it was going to catch on there in new zealand there. So it makes sense to me that this, the monuments would be there. And I, I love the fact that you have Jason Momoa narrating the film. How did you go about getting him to, to be part of the project? <laughs> I, you know, the best way to put it be the coconut wires, how to call it. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> we were doing the, the recreations of the special moments of Duke mm-hmm. in Makaha on the west side of, <laughs> of Oahu, the wild west of Oahu, as they like to call it. 
And uh, that's where his connection happens. And as, as people caught the vision of what we were doing, they helped us eventually get connected to Jason. And, I mean, what are the odds that you'd be telling the story of, in my opinion, one of the most important Polynesians in history, but he was a Hawaiian. And one of the most famous Hollywood stars right now is a Hawaiian. The timing's unreal for something like this to happen the way it did. Kevin, what stands out for you about this movie? Well, it, it took on a, a topic that deserves a lot of attention. I think everybody's been waiting to see uh, when we would get to see a seminal piece of, you know, Ken Burns-style documentary and, f- you know, really finally done about the father of modern surfing. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, the, the team, the production team there hit it out of the park and Isaac's uh, feel for narrative and story and what counts in the story and how he dealt with Duke's, uh, you know, Hawaiian heritage uh, in basically, a, a, you know, a very sensitive, you know, racial time during uh, Hawaii's kind of turning, the, you know, from war to war. I don't know. It just turned for me, it really handled all those topics well. Mm-hmm. Isaac, there's so much that's gone into this and, and you reference the uh, recreations, which is one of my favorite part of the movie. You've got obviously historical footage as well, but then the dramatization of those key events, like his entry into the world of competitive swimming. How long has it taken you to put this together? Oh, good heavens. That's that's uh, <laughs> that's where I, you know, I probably should throw in my, my producers because, man, they they believed in me. That's for sure. So it's it's been a... It's it's been it's been a while. It took longer. Obviously, COVID kind of threw a monkey in the wrench of all things. But in a way, for me, it gave me extra time to just refine some things. But mm-hmm. uh, oh god, it's been a while. We shot originally in the middle of 2019. I'd say that's when I traveled mm-hmm. to the main three countries for this. It's a special task to tell a story like this one because you're talking about someone that's near and dear to the Hawaiians. And when it's that close and that important to someone, it, it's important on how you approach it. The fact that my producing team, it's, it's Sidewinder Films, that I fell into their lap with this, where they're a nonprofit, actually, I think, helped us in the sense that, you know, this fit what they were going for, where they want to teach, they want to educate the world on people that are important. And, and for the Hawaiians, it wasn't someone walking in trying to profiteer off of one of their heroes. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that was an important aspect. I think it helped that it was a Polynesian coming in. And then when we got there, you know, I've been working in this industry since I was 13. I started out as an actor, and, and I've, I've been in TV shows and all these things my entire life. And yet when I was there in Makaha, this is the first time when we were doing the recreations of some of my favorite moments of Duke's story. And I'll tell you why we let him in a second. It, it, it's the first time in my life I was sitting there with the crew, and I realized every single person working with me was Polynesian. And I'd never had that before. It was not something I'd aimed for. It was something that happened extremely organically. And I was like, wow, this is, this is special. And then the Hawaiians, you could tell they just got into it. I mean, when you're standing on the beach and you bring out a, a board that we'd, we'd, <laughs> we had had carved in the film, and it's, it's something I use mm-hmm. artistically to say it's kind of like symbolically shaping Duke's story as we're shaping a board throughout the whole storyline, is – when you bring out a board with Duke's name on it on the beach, that doesn't happen. And people don't like seeing that happen, you know, unless there's a special moment. So when mm-hmm. it did, there was a hush on this huge beach. Everyone's felt it. And, and the recreations were important, too, because, I mean, it's, it's hard to put into words what Duke really did. And, and I'd say that 
the surprising factor of dude for me in telling this story in general was he's he's become like a folk legend. You don't know what's true and what isn't true over time, mm-hmm. and, and you almost don't want to ruin the cool stories because it's like you want you don't want to take away. That's part of what makes it cool. But what blew my mind is how much of it is so just true that he did. And so recreating some of these stories was really just special and a lot of fun. It required a lot of a lot of faith on the part of my crew because I mean we didn't have a massive budget, but luckily I came from music videos and and I'm kind of used to just getting dirty and making it still look good mm-hmm. no matter what it takes. If you're just joining me, my guests are Isaac Halasima. He's the director of Waterman, which is a documentary about Duke Kahanamoku, the father of modern surfing. We're also speaking with Kevin Miller. He's the executive director of the Florida Surf Film Festival, which is where you can see Waterman. So, Kevin, I want to come back to you for a moment. What did you learn that was new about, uh, as Isaac was saying, almost like a folk hero in, in the world of surfing. What sort of struck you as interesting or something you hadn't heard before about uh, Duke Kahanamoku? As a uh, long-time surfer from Florida and, you know, somebody who doesn't necessarily pride myself on, like, a huge knowledge of history, um, I felt uh, like his surfing in particular was at the forefront of skill at its time with the equipment that they had if you watch Dwayne in the documentary do the recreation with mm-hmm. the equipment that he's given, it's extremely difficult to ride those boards as well as he did. And, you know, to see the recreation and to imagine what Duke was actually doing with that equipment, just from a technical standpoint, you know, as a surfer, I thought that, uh, you know, it was pretty impressive. And, you know, obviously all of the facts and the uh, the Hollywood career that Duke had kind of caught me off guard. I had no idea that his presence in Hollywood was such a big deal. And he kind of went from, uh, you know, an Olympic athlete to a, a major presence in Hollywood for a while. And then mm-hmm. kind of went back to Hawaii and, you know, things kind of dissipated at that point for him. And then you kind of, I always like to see what happens in somebody's life when the momentum of uh, public opinion uh, kind of dissipates. So that was the, uh, a good part of the story. Have you ever tried surfing on one of those old school longboards carved from a piece of wood? I have not. Uh, Isaac, how about you? Have you have you been on one of those? Oh, dude, I am a disgrace to the Polynesian people when it comes to the <laughs> surfboard. You don't want to. You don't want to know. I grew up as a dancer, so. <laughs> but you know, I, you know, what's awesome about surfers? That's why I love that this is in a surfing festival. You know, I, I say that Duke has slowly kind of disappeared in time and he's being forgotten. But when you talk to surfers, he is very much alive. And it's it's one thing that I've been – it's almost heartwarming because Duke really means so much to me personally that to, to find an entire community that has always been interested in him, it, it just made sense when I heard about this film festival. I was like, oh, my gosh, yeah, this is, this is a great fit. Surfers, I mean, they just light up when they talk about Duke. You, I mean, to see – Guys like Kelly Slater and Jack Johnson and, and Kai Lenny and, and all these, these fantastic, just otherworldly surfers talk about Duke as if, as if it's someone that they could never even be like. You know, it's just, but that they just love so much too is, is really special to me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazing to me. And, and you're right that those guys, those boards they were riding back then, no wonder they were shredded, you know, just the way they looked because just carrying that thing, holy <laughs> crap. Yeah. Like, Absolutely, I, I can't believe it. You know, and then and then tandem surfing, like you have no fin on that board. I, I watched that slow mo footage of Dwayne over and over again, and he's moving side to side just as much as he's moving forward, trying to keep it going. 
and then he's he's holding someone on his shoulders and steering with one foot, and you're just going, what in the world? On a board that's over 100 pounds? You know, I like that. He kept calling it a Cadillac is the <laughs> way he put it. He says that he said that once you get going, it's like the board goes and tells you where it's going to go. That's that's how it works. In a story like this, it seems to me like you're, you've got two movies almost going on in one thing here because you have the documentary and then you also have the recreations, which is sort of like a movie within a movie. And it must have been a bit of a challenge to think, how am I going to make these little moments and bring them to life and treat them you know, with the respect they deserve? Because you want to make sure you're, you're staying true to the stories and you know, what people remembered of, of this character, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and, and that's why you know, Dwayne was so special for us. He was selected by you know, all the people in the Caja were like, no, this is your guy. And then we see him on it. It was like, whoa, this is, this is our guy. Because... <laughs> It did take a special person to do it right off the bat. And after that, see, I, I, kind of, I guess I can let you in. One of my little visual secrets I had it is, is I wanted Duke to look like Superman. And I'm a, fan, I'm a big fan of the movie Man of Steel. Mm-hmm. And so if, you, so if you look at the way Duke is shot in these recreations, I was very specific with my DP and all the guys working with me. I'm like, this is what I need him to look like. I'm going to make it colored like this. I'm going to make him just feel like the hero that I think he really is. You know, especially in the, the rescue scene in California, which is one scene that I, I didn't know about and a lot of people don't know about, how the, the beginning of – how it's, it, it is the beginning of surfboards as a rescue tool. Hmm. You know, and lifeguarding in general was Duke shooting through 20-foot waves to save eight people out of 15 on a shipwrecked boat. And it's, it's one of those scenes where I'm like, I'm just going to make this look awesome. Because it, it, it is awesome when you read the story and – and then when you know that even though he just pulled off something where the sheriff in the newspaper is saying, you know, it's, it's superhuman what he pulled off, he wouldn't talk to the press because he felt like a failure. He didn't save everybody. Hmm. You know, and so it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. And, it, and that starts the folk legend, too, because since Duke didn't talk about it, you get people telling the story, and they don't always line up, and it just kind of makes it cooler <laughs> in a way. You referenced some of the other athletes too, Isaac, who overcame segregation and discrimination to excel in their fields, like Jim Thorpe, for example. So is part of your goal with this film to help bring those achievements from Duke Kahanamoku to a, to a wider audience and sort of elevate them somewhat? Yeah, I, well, it's a good point. It's something I always bring up is, is I, I've, I've always believed when people talk about Jackie Robinson, Jesse Owens, Jim Thorpe, you know, even Muhammad Ali and all these great American athletes and, and world athletes in general that that have been just game changers. Duke should be at the center of that conversation with all of them mm-hmm. because he really did break through color barriers and, and all these things. And, and I think we're in an environment nowadays where people like to see someone like that, but they also like to see someone worthy of of praise in a different way. And Duke did it in a very different way. It's the one thing with him is, is the spirit of Aloha was at the center of his message, at the center of everything he did. And it's, it's what made him, I think, very different in the sense that, you know, it's, it's hard to have the race issue with a lot of things. People are like, well, I mean, what did he deal with? And like, he, he just didn't see it. It's like hard to explain this. He, he saw people. If, if someone was racist towards him, he saw that person. He didn't see an entire race. And, and it, so it just it changed the way he treated people, and in return, it changed the way they treated him because everyone was an individual, you know. And it's 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 always an interesting thing. So I think that message alone should hopefully help 
catch people's eyes, you know, in the sense that, wait, this guy became the most famous human being in the world at one point, and and we don't know about him. It's like that kind of story usually catches wind with a lot of people. And, and, and like Kevin was saying, like different stories that people didn't know about. Like you look at Hollywood now, and we see The Rock, you know, it's, I love this is Florida-based, by the way, because Florida's like home of The Rock for my family. We, <laughs> we love we love The Rock. Anything The Rock does, we like or we'll pretend we like. We don't care. So it's just how it works. But, uh, but it's like, you know, you got The Rock, you got Jason, you got Cliff Curtis, you got Taika Waititi, all these Polynesians that are all over Hollywood. And, and to know that the first was Duke, mm-hmm. you know, the, the one breaking those lines. At a time when they would rather paint someone a different color than hire them, right. it was Duke in that era showing up on movies and movie posters because he was that likable in the time period when racism was rampant. It's a really interesting situation. And, and we, we talk a little bit about that in the doc, how, how it, people started seeing him as just different because of the way he, he treated people around him and the way he was just so full of love and so much aloha. It was hard to just be mean to him. You know, make it look like Superman for just a day, then I, I think I've done my part, hopefully. Kevin, who do you want to see this movie? Well, part of this, you know, getting together and having a festival to uh, share others' work from around the world is to make sure our community sees it. But also, we have a jury with the finest surf journalists in the world, uh, Scott Hewlett from the Surfer's Journal, Matt Warshaw, Encyclopedia of Surfing. Uh, these folks are the folks that I also enjoy sharing this work with. I mean, they would probably see it eventually, but on the big screen, in person, with Isaac there uh, to answer questions and, and experience, that's what it, we started it for, and that's what it's all about for me. Anything else uh, you want to tell people about the film festival this year? Friday night and Saturday night uh, will be the culmination of the 2021 season. Um, we have another film coming up in February if you can't make this one. So keep your eyes peeled. And uh, we're here to share this hard work from wonderful filmmakers with you. And, uh, you know, it's a blast. It's it's a good party. Well, Kevin Miller is the co-founder and executive director of the Florida Surf Film Festival. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. And we've also been speaking with Isaac Halasima. He's the director of Waterman, a documentary about two-time Olympic gold medalist Duke Kahanamoku, the father of modern surfing. You can see that documentary at the film festival. Uh, Isaac, thanks so much as well. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for the invite to the film festival. I, I, I'm really excited. I, I love I just, I just, love the idea that people are going to get to see a guy that it'll surprise them, you know, and they'll be, they'll be able to be proud of someone special. Support for Intersection comes from our listeners and from Advent Health. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening. 